Freedom Hut. ACB is crushing the libs at these hearings. Trump officially beats COVID. Fauci says he's not political. And what happens if nobody wins on Election Day? Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, friends. We can count the days now pretty quickly, can't we, before Election Day. And yet this entire week, pretty much all the political oxygen in the room, so to speak, is going to be taken up by this ongoing Supreme Court justice hearing as if the political stakes couldn't be any higher. We have Democrats watching their favorite toy of policy. It's supposed to be a revered, uh, a revered judge, a number of judges who interpret and apply the Constitution. But as we know, it really is just the Democrat super legislature. They love it. They think it's fantastic as long as it gives them what they want. This is the jurisprudence of a five year old. It should be that way because I want it that way. That's really what the living Constitution left wing activist judge approach to all this is. But. The good news for all of us watching is that Amy Coney Barrett is smarter and a better lawyer than all these people who are questioning her. I'd also say that some of the members of the Senate Judiciary, as you're seeing them and and watching them question, and they're deep into their 80s. I I just want to know, is is this now an expectation that everyone should have that when you're in everyone else, usually you think about retiring or, or or moving into other capacities in your life. But not if you're Diane Feinstein or Leahy. You get to do this until you're 100, it seems. Okay. Uh, there's, I guess, no surprise then that they pretend that Joe Biden being almost 80 when he becomes president is somehow not indicative of, of possible problems with his health and his acuity. Regardless, Coney Barrett doing a great job today. Uh, they kept coming at her with the same version of a question that she had already answered, which is effectively. How how would you uh, how would you deal with this case or what do you think of this precedent? So you have no thoughts on the subject. Dianne Feinstein condescendingly and very stupidly asked her after Barrett had already explained a dozen times that as a sitting federal judge, she isn't allowed to say what she would decide on specific cases. She just keeps having to say it because ultimately this is about Democrats grandstanding an election cycle for their own purposes while pretending that they care about the Constitution, while making this big show of how much this is about some broader principle when it's just not. Uh, ACB did a phenomenal job today. Uh, uh, You had to watch her to really appreciate some of the the nuances and the the deft manner in which she parried all these different assaults, all these different efforts to undermine, to entrap, She's just better at this than they are. She's just smarter. Thank God. Absolutely qualified and a female because, you know, if she was male, you know, this. The Democrats would come forward with some version of he touched me a long time ago, even if I can't prove that I was ever in the same state as him. And the Democrats would all say a credible allegation. 
destroying the word credible in the process. An allegation with no underlying facts, evidence or support shouldn't be considered credible just because somebody makes it and has a, a quiver in their voice and looks like they're about to tear up. That doesn't mean that someone's telling the truth, Libs. We found that out during the uh, effort to destroy Kavanaugh. And also, I think Democrats are really seeing the right is entirely unified on this. There, there is no dissent. Anybody who is saying don't push through Amy Coney Barrett is a fraud and a hack helping the other side for their own purposes. They don't think it helps conservatism or constitutionalism or even the rule of law. We are absolutely united on ACB getting through, as well as calling her ACB because it makes the people who created the cult of RBG so very, very angry. It is, it is fun to watch them melt down over that. You can't use her initials. Watch us. So this is a moment when the Democrats learn that there is a price to be paid. And I think it's a very important lesson. The price to be paid for what they did to Kavanaugh, which, as I've said to you, radicalized many people, in fact, really turned my thinking much more toward wartime conservatism in our politics. Can't give in to the other side. Must must win. We're not at a point where a truce or an armistice is advisable or even really possible in our politics. They have to lose and understand that the insanity, the far left lunacy that they continue to push for is incompatible with our system. That's all there is to it. And that's why pushing through this nomination, really just fulfilling the constitutional obligation of an open Supreme Court seat with a Senate in session and a president who's already made the appointment. This is the definition of constitutional. And yet they still play all these games saying they want to depoliticize the court by deeply politicizing it. This is exactly what we would expect. You know, this is like saying that the executioner is the one who is giving clemency because he releases the person from the burden of being in prison. I mean, it's a real twisted way of approaching it, isn't it? We're going to depoliticize the court. By making sure that everybody understands we view, meaning the Democrats view the court as a political instrument necessary for them to pursue their whims and and whatever mechanisms of power they think they need. And that's all that it is. Judge Barrett was particularly strong today on those broad philosophical questions. She pointed out that she interprets the Constitution, that she will not, in fact, make decisions based upon her own beliefs about what is good. When we talk about beliefs, that's that's always implying a level of of just judgment and choice between different matters, not about what is factual, what is what is necessarily objective. Right. There's a there's an element of subjectivity in it when you're entering into what you think would be most fair, for example, as a judge. That's irrelevant. What does the law say? What does the system we have here that people have voted for legislators to write and put into place, and that is all held together by our Constitution, what does that system produce based on the facts, based on the competing interests here? That's it. There should be something really mechanical in the thinking about a good judge. There should be something that almost feels like it's a... uh, a Swiss watch ticking off the seconds. It shouldn't be. It's not a it's not a creative process. They're watchmakers, not oil painters. That's what a judge should be. And here's what Judge Barrett says specifically about that. Play 10. 
I interpret the Constitution as a law, that I interpret its text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. Okay. So that meaning doesn't change over time, and it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it. It's very straightforward, isn't it? The law is the law. Even if I don't necessarily like a law, unless it is unconstitutional, I have to apply the law as written. Notice that that is somehow, in our upside-down world of the media and the Democrat Party, that has somehow become a controversial position. When in truth, it's the most straightforward, it's the most obvious position one could ever have. Right? The law is the law. It's almost, it's like a tautology. It's a statement of fact of the obvious. What does the other side do? Well, the law is a lot of competing things and there's societal interest and pressure and then there's this other stuff and it's kind of like you're just making a souffle with everything in the kitchen and whoop, whatever comes out of the oven is what you get. No. It's not how this is supposed to go. And I guess if anything worthwhile is being taken from these hearings... It's that individuals uh, should see the difference in underlying judicial philosophy between the left and the right in this country. That the left, the Democrat Party, really does embrace a utilitarian view of the Supreme Court and really of legal interpretation in general. It's a means to an end. It's all just about, uh, about competing forces and maneuvering to get what you want. There's no agreed upon principle. There's no statute. There's no law that's there, that we just admit is there, it's always, can we find a way around it? Can we change the language? Can we reinterpret it to mean something else that we would prefer? This undermines the very foundation of the law itself, and that's what the left continues to do. One of the ways that they've been attacking Judge Barrett is to suggest that she would be the second coming of Scalia, which... I think anybody in the legal profession could be so lucky. I mean, Scalia was a brilliant man and also a a larger than life figure when it came to the law and his time on the Supreme Court. And she's also saying, look, I clerked for the guy. I, I appreciate what he did. But here's who you're getting if you confirm me. Play 11. Justice Scalia, he was an originalist, right? Yes, he was. People say that you're a female Scalia. What would you say? I would say that Justice Scalia was obviously a mentor, and as I said um, in the when I accepted the president's nomination, that his philosophy is mine too. You know, he was a very eloquent um, defender of originalism, and that was also true of textualism, which is the way that I approach statutes and in their interpretation. And similarly to what I just said about originalism, for textualism, the judge approaches the text as it was written with the meaning it had at the time and doesn't infuse our own meaning into it. But I want to be careful to say that if I'm confirmed, you would not be getting Justice Scalia. You would be getting Justice Barrett. And that's so because originalists don't always agree, and neither do textualists. Justices Scalia and Thomas disagreed often enough that my friend Judge Amul Thapar teaches a class called Scalia versus Thomas. You know, it's not a mechanical exercise. Well, I'll wait till the movie comes out. <laughs> so there she is explaining the, the separation even. Now, now she's saying it can't be too mechanical, which is true. But it also can't be a creative process. 
Right? It can't be a process by which you're imbuing into the law. So the separation between a textualist and an originalist getting deep into the weeds is one thing. The separation between left and right is here is the law. What does it say? What does it mean? And what what precedents apply? And the left is like, well, no, we think it'd be better for society if we just said the following. Oh, OK. That's what they do. And uh, perhaps the best example of this is the one that's most central in many ways to this confirmation. There's been a ton of talk about Obamacare. But that's just the Democrat senators trying to grandstand here in an election cycle. Obamacare, Obamacare, health care. That's all they want to talk about, even though this has nothing really to do with ACB. Uh, but the other issue is, of course, abortion, one in which when you look at the Roe v. Wade and even Planned Parenthood v. Casey, you have two Supreme Court decisions that are just legally indefensible. And everyone everyone knows this who understands anything and is objective. But the left really, really likes those things. Does not want that to change. People might feel very differently uh, about state government in, let's say, California, where they would, I'm sure, have zero restrictions on abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy. When next door in Utah, they would I don't know, I'm guessing they might enact, if not a ban on abortion outright, uh, a ban after, you know, 10 weeks or 20 weeks, three weeks, uh, three months, whatever, whatever it may be. So they don't want to get to that point where they have to actually defend this. They like they like just pointing to Roe v. Wade and saying it's in the Constitution. when We all know it is flatly not in the Constitution. Uh, we all know that it's actually not something that anybody should think was a constitutional right in the first place. And then there's one of my favorite ways that ACB was slapping down the various attempts to get after her today. She was borrowing it from her predecessor. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Judge, I'm I'm deeply concerned about ways in which your approach to something that may sound abstract to folks watching stare decisis or precedent, that means your approach to reviewing and reconsidering and possibly overturning long settled cases may overturn some of the very principles for which Justice Ginsburg fought her entire adult life, principles that protect settled fundamental rights for all Americans. What might this mean? Cases like Griswold versus Connecticut that established married couples have a right to obtain and use contraception in the privacy of their own home may be in danger of being struck down. You could say may and then put pretty much anything in the future behind it. And technically, we don't know. But that's absurd. Right? No one's going to strike down contraception. There's no there's no push to do that. There's no effort to do that. It's just not reality. But they're trying to really scare people around this. They're trying very hard to terrify people around the issue of of contraceptives. And uh, they're doing it with a whole bunch of things. Health care uh, with with gay marriage. I mean, you know, they think that ACB is going to come in there and everything that the left holds dear will all of a sudden be up in smoke. Now, that's not true. And they don't really believe that. But they're saying it anyway because they're trying to generate as much fear and outrage of this nomination as they possibly can. And one of the best tricks that I've seen Amy Coney Barrett use to deflect all of this, and it's not new, but it's great that she gets to call it this, is the RBG rule. She is citing Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her confirmation when she was asked questions as precedent for why she will not, because remember, she's also a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge right now, ACB is, she will not weigh in on something 
preemptively to tell you how she would or would not rule on a case. And that's what um, other than the gaseous speeches from Democrats about how, you know, the Constitution means and the libs, you know, the rights of a woman to blah, 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 a lot of that going on. Other than that, it's all, well, what do you think about this case? What would you do here? What would you do here? And it's pretty much ACB saying, well, that case was decided, so that is now the law. That case is decided, so that is now also the law. She's not going to play their game, but they're, it's tough to tell if they really think they're going to trip her up. If they do, they're delusional. Or if what's really happening here is that the Democrats are just trying to ask these questions and then use the refusal to answer, in this case, applying a huge and hypocritical double standard, applying the refusal for ACB to answer as, as though that's some or, or insisting that that's some uh, some evidence of inconsistency, deception. It's just not true. But it seems that that's what they're trying to do. ACB had to remind them today, you want judges, you don't want legal pundits up here. Play eight. Trump made claims of voter fraud and suggested he wanted to delay the upcoming election. Does the Constitution give the president of the United States the authority to unilaterally delay a general election under any circumstances? Does federal law? Well, Senator, if that question ever came before me, I would need to hear arguments from the litigants and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process. So, you know, if if I give off the cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit. And I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind. Now, that's a perfect answer, but it also establishes something and shows you something. The Democrats, the libs do want legal pundits on the bench. They would if they had their way, they would put people that go on MSNBC and say, yes, Trump is a traitor. Russia collusion. I was a federal prosecutor before and Trump should be in prison. They want one of those people on the bench. Gives the Democrat base whatever they want. So it's funny because she says, Comey Barrett, Coney Barrett says, uh, you don't want pundits. Do you ju- do you a senator? And the real answer in the senator's mind is, oh, no, we want liberal pundits to be the Supreme Court justices. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So that's the way the process works. Yes, it would start because there was a law, then there was a lawsuit, then there was an appeal, then the court granted cert, and then the court decided the case. Is that true no matter what the issue is, whether it's gun, abortion, health care, uh, campaign finance, does that process hold true for everything? Yes, you always no, judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda, I like guns, I hate guns, I like abortion, I hate abortion, and walk in like a, a royal queen and impose you know, their will on the world. You have to wait for cases and controversies, which is the language of the Constitution, to wind their way through the process. What about that should be considered controversial? That's a term that you will always see the media use very selectively and with propagandistic intent all the time, right? Controversial conservative. That's a favorite term. This thing is a controversial liberal. You'll notice that. Or a controversial left-wing justice. No, no, no. no. Maybe a justice who the right pounces on, but not a justice who's actually controversial. Coney Barrett's telling everybody here what we all should know, what should just be uh, a widely understood fact 
of the judiciary, and yet we also, at some level, all understand it's not really the way it is. That's not the way things have been for quite some time here. There are judges who show up. I mean, I think the most egregious example is uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is just, what would a left-wing activist want? That's what she does. Almost without exception. I'm sure there's some 9-0 cases where I'd say, fine, she applied the law here, fine. But on, on a lot of very big cases, Sotomayor is whatever the left wants, she would go for. That's not good. That's not good because that's not the function of the judges. As we know, we keep going back to these underlying principles and the left tries to dispense with them and pretend that there's some other judicial philosophy that would make sense that would not just be a hyper politicization of the court. But that's what we're seeing happening. There is a hyper politicization that has been going on for a long time. And we'll get to court packing. That still hasn't gone away. There's a lot to discuss today. Uh Judge Barrett told Senator Feinstein that she would just adhere to the law. I mean, what could be more straightforward? But again, controversial constitutionalist. Play seven. Well, what, what is your view of how it should factor in? The, I, let's see. I think that any issue that would arise under the Affordable Care Act or any other statute should be determined by the law, by looking at the text of the statute, by looking at precedent, um, the same way that it would for anyone. And if there were policy differences or policy consequences, those are for this body. Um, for the court, it's really a question of adhering to the law and going where the law leads and leaving the policy decisions up to you. Anyone have a problem with that? Oh, yes, no Democrats do. That's not what they want. We, we are trying to achieve, and this is one of the biggest takeaways of this entire hearing and the mess all around it. Democrats want what they want from the Supreme Court. Conservatives are pushing for judges to act as judges and apply a judicial philosophy of what is the law and how should it be applied. Not how would I like the law to read and then apply that interpretation. It's very very important difference between the two sides. And I mean, I think one of them is intellectually defensible and the other just flatly isn't. But the other is very powerful. And a lot of people want power. They want their way. Remember, the Supreme Court for a lot of libs, too, especially on things uh, like abortion. It's in a sense, they think it's like a, a dispensation from on high. Well, everything that I've done here, the Supreme Court says it's OK. Therefore, it must be ethical. The Supreme Court says it's OK, therefore I must be right, which is always such an interesting approach to take, considering that we all would agree that there have been horrific Supreme Court decisions in the past. Dred Scott comes to mind right away. There have been Supreme Court decisions that are morally, legally, intellectually, ethically indefensible. But throughout the course of the 20th century, the left got used to, well, once we get something, it's always and forever and we'll do everything to protect that thing that we have from the court and act like that's written in stone. All of their victories are permanent. All of our judicial victories are temporary. That's really at the heart of this. Judge Barrett certainly sees that. Now on to the, the point of, uh, of attack against her that we're going to continue to see here. They're trying to say she's Scalia. They're trying to say that she's going to be part of, of gutting the Affordable Care Act. They're, they're trying to say all these things. Um, 
the one that they, I, I believe, are hoping to really make inroads against her. And I don't think they think it's going to stop her confirmation, but I do believe they're, they're hoping to use it to undermine her and to score political points, points as in things that will translate to votes in just a few weeks here, uh, political points against her. And it's going to be on the issue of her, they won't call it religious extremism, but they'll keep insinuating at it. And then the main point of attack will be on uh, gay rights and LGBTQ issues. I think that's where they're really going to go after her. Now, she's already begun to defang this attack, I think. I think she's already started to create a pretty solid defense against it by saying things like this. Play clip nine. You're Catholic. I am. I think we've established that. Uh, the tenets of your faith mean a lot to you personally. Is that correct? That is true. You've chosen to raise your fa- uh, family in the Catholic faith. Is that correct? That's true. Can you set aside whatever Catholic beliefs you have regarding any issue before you? I can. I have done that in my time on the Seventh Circuit. If I stay on the Seventh Circuit, I'll continue to do that. If I'm confirmed to the Supreme Court, I will do that still. You know, th- this, I think, also shows you the difference in mentality with the with the left and the right. I mean, for one thing, you know, there are times when even though as a conservative, I want a thing. I understand that we can't have that thing because we agree upon a process and it's a question of judgment, desire. I, you know, I think this thing would be better, but I can't get it unless I break a principle, unless I break, a, you know, a an agreed upon rule regulation and, you know, therefore, I won't do that thing for the left. It's it's all utilitarian. It's all whatever gets it done, whatever works. That really is the mentality. That's the philosophy. I mean, they're constantly just wallowing in their own sanctimoniousness. They really believe that everything that they're pushing for isn't something that might be a little bit better. on the other side has a different point of view that could also be good or be better. It's their way or literally everyone's going to die. The Green New Deal. Their way or literally women are going to be in chains and enslaved like in The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which you're seeing already women showing up in Handmaid's Tale costumes outside of the Supreme Court. And they like to misuse the word literally. Right. Of course. So that's what's happening here. She's she's already establishing that the attacks on her religion are unfounded and unfair. The left is hoping to just use that, though, for their base sees this too. Catholics who actually believe Catholic doctrine according to Democrats, are, are weirdos. And I know there are Catholic priests out there, especially Jesuits, who are formerly educated me and, and can be very smart and very good educators, but a lot of them are a bunch of commies. I'm just going to say it. And some of them probably listen to this show, but I'm just telling you the truth. A lot of Jesuit commies running around. And there are Catholics that effectively replace actual church doctrine with their own social justice doctrine. But those who don't make that choice are considered weirdos by the Democrat Party. What, what do you mean you're a traditional Catholic? What do you mean you believe marriage is between a man and a woman, abortion is, is wrong, is evil? What, these, these are church teachings still to, the, to this day. Uh, but if you are a Catholic who actually believes that stuff, it's very clear and, and thinks that public policy should reflect that, not through some you know, theological process or something, but through the actual mechanisms of government and of the legislature, the Democrats view you with a, a disdain. You know, they, they view you as some kind of a curiosity. So nothing so far has shown 
any even hint of a crack in what I've told you all along here uh, that Amy Coney Barrett is well qualified, more than well qualified, is a fantastic legal mind, is an originalist and is doing, a, you know, is going to be fantastic under the pressures of this moment where we know the Democrats are looking for anything they can get on her. They're looking to destroy her. I mean, if they could humiliate her, force her to tears and have her run out of that out of that Senate chamber in front of millions and millions of people watching, they would do it in a heartbeat and think nothing of it, even if they had to lie to do it. The only thing that holds the Democrats back, the only thing that has prevented them from going full Kavanaugh on her so far is that they're not sure how to do it. And they know that a misfire, they know that an ambush that turns into an obvious debacle and for which there can be no support from any intelligent person, uh, that's not going to look good for them. So once again, what, what holds them back is not about what's right or about what's fair. It's about what will work and what won't. And they haven't figured out the angle of attack yet. They're still trying. They're still hoping that they're going to get there. And you've got people like Senator Blumenthal who are making wild statements about how this could destroy the court as we know it. What? Play five. The Republicans have the votes on this committee. They can prevail by raw power, but they don't have the American people on their side. They don't have history on their side. They are losing because the American people want the next president and the next Senate to choose the next justice. And the American people want the Affordable Care. They want reproductive freedoms and sensible common sense gun violence prevention. But there is an agenda here, and it is a pretty ugly one. The president of the United States decided in the days after Justice Ginsburg's death, he wanted to put another justice on the Supreme Court so she could decide this election. He made it absolutely clear. He articulated it. And this justice must commit to recuse herself. Otherwise, she's going to destroy the legitimacy of the court and her own credibility. That's why I demanded that she, in fact, take herself out of any decision involving the election. Everything this slimy Senator Blumenthal says is either untrue or a misdirection. First of all, uh, the, the notion that the American that, that he speaks for the American people. No. That there's some poll that determines what the United States Senate will do. Everyone who understands politics in America knows that if Republican senators, any Republican senator uh, who is not trying to win over some independents and Democrats for reelection. So that's what Collins and Murkowski's. But any, any red state Republican who doesn't go forward with this would be done in politics. The base will turn on them forever. And the only reason that uh, you can have Collins and Murkowski and who knows what's going to end up happening with them. But the only reason that they could even be uh, question marks or out is because their votes are not needed. Somebody else drops and all of a sudden this doesn't go through. That's a whole different situation. And you even saw this when you had uh, the s senator from West Virginia vote in favor of Kavanaugh after all the stuff that was happening there. Because the Democrats knew, look, if we want a Democrat senator in West Virginia... We got to let this guy do it. Um, so that that's a, a political calculation of expedience. And that's what you're going to say. I mean, I think that everyone understands exactly what's going on here when you have people like Blumenthal 
make Joe Manchin, by the way, I was blanking on his name for a second. Joe Manchin of West Virginia voted for Kavanaugh to be confirmed because West Virginians, based on their internal polling, which I heard from some Democrat activists I know at the time, was showing over a 70 percent, 70 percent wanting Kavanaugh to get put on the Supreme Court. So that would have been suicidal politically for Manchin not to vote for Kavanaugh. So that's why they allowed that. Right. But anybody else and he was and it was OK for him, too, because he wasn't the deciding vote. Anybody else who were to break ranks as a Republican now, what are you going to take? You're going to take political advice from Blumenthal. Come on. Nobody's that dumb. Right. But beyond that, this uh, demand that she recuse herself, that's not how recusal works. Somebody saying something about another judge doesn't mean that that judge has to recuse at all. That, you, you could do this to anybody, right? I mean, think about this. A sitting president could say about any Supreme Court judge, uh, well, I expect so-and-so is going to do what I want him to or her to on this case. And then that judge all of a sudden has to say, okay, well, I can't be on the case anymore. Gee, think about how easily that could be abused. No, that's not how recusal would work here. It's absurd. But Blumenthal's absurd. This whole thing. They have no argument, folks. They've lost. That's all this comes down to is they lost. They didn't. They didn't convince RBG to step down when she should have under the Obama administration. They just worshipped her too much. They made a bad call. She stayed in the job too long. And now they're paying the price. That's it. Everything else is noise. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I'm deeply concerned about the Affordable Care Act. And what we did yesterday, I feel very good about it, is we brought real people into the room showing the real harm that this nominee will do to people like Connor Curran, a 10-year-old boy in Ridgefield, Connecticut, who suffers from an incurable disease and is alive today because he has health care access afforded by the ACA. So people with pre-existing conditions who would lose their coverage are in that room. What about all the millions of people who had their plans canceled and then had to spend a whole lot more money for a crappier plan under the ACA? Did they talk about any of them? Oh, no, I don't think so. OK, this is a policy dispute. This has nothing to do with ACB's nomination. This is about what the United States Congress has produced. And in terms of the usage of raw power, which Blumenthal before brought up, right? All this, this is just the Democrats. I'm sorry, the Republicans using raw power. Obamacare was a raw power exercise. They used a you know once in a generation uh, Senate House majority, supermajority in the Senate to ram through legislation that not a single Republican was on board for. And it was le- really massive legislation, thousands of pages to reorder our health care system. And in the last election, you had a whole bunch of candidates on the Democrat side who wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to go with the Medicare for all plan. Well, why did we go through all this stuff with Obamacare so that a few years later, Democrats could say, let's go for the full on Medicare for all, because we all know then that turns into socialized medicine. Just wait, just wait a few years. But it was so great. It was so awesome that they were willing to scrap the whole thing. That's a fact. That's reality. But Again, that's also a policy dispute that has nothing to do really with ACB, except Democrats think the Supreme Court is where policy gets made. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Speaking of courts, we've got uh, less than three weeks before the election, or maybe it's three weeks to the you know three weeks of time. Yeah, uh, do we ever get to get an answer about court packing? I mean, I, I just want to know. Can, can we get? They're never going to get this answer, huh? They're not going to tell us. They will not address the Democrats, Biden, Harris. They will not tell the American people what their plan is on this incredibly important issue. They're just they're just not not going to tell us no no interest in telling us that's that's how they're going to play this. Well, we all know why. Right. We all understand what the reasoning is behind this. If the American people found out that and when I say the American people, remember, we always have to have to break this down into segments. There are crazy lib Democrats who, if uh, Biden was walking around uh, dressed like Joseph Stalin, grew a funky mustache and said that he wanted to go full commie. There are Democrats who would still a lot of them would still vote for him. Anything but Trump. And I'm being serious. A lot of Democrats would still vote for Joe Biden. Even they'd say, yeah, whatever, you know, Kamala will take over and we'll push him aside. So we're not in a normal political time here. But for those Americans who are still watching, observing and trying to make their decision about which way they'd go here, uh, it, it, it is not confidence inspiring that Democrats who have spent four years complaining about how Trump is destroying our sacred institutions would be willing to upend the institution of the Supreme Court in this way. Right. For obvious political reasons. That's why I think it's so interesting that they're they're now just trying to act like it doesn't matter or we, we don't have a right to know. I mean, Biden said, what was it over the weekend? When asked about this by a reporter, he said they simply do not have a right to know. The American people don't have a right to know, which is pretty stunning when you think about it. But that's where we are. Don Lemon brought this up with Chris Cuomo. Bro Cuomo, do we even lift Don? Actually, Don probably spent some time in the gym. But uh, here's here's how this exchange went, because remember, Don Lemon will say the quiet part out loud a lot. Play three. I'm not surprised by any of it. I'm just sick of it. But listen, I got why are you why are you like pushing him about court packing? Because you're doing the Republicans work. No, I'm not. Yeah. That, it's a legitimate that, question. It's not. A, well, look, it's not a legitimate question in that. What? During the Go debate, ahead. the vice president raised a question. The moderator didn't raise a question. Plus, it is this. This is something that um, this is a hypothetical, whether or not Joe Biden has said twice at least on tape that I've seen, how he feels about court packing. And I think it's a distraction from the Republicans. And why doesn't he answer it? Because he doesn't have to, just because they, he doesn't have to Well, he doesn't it. have to answer it, yeah, but you don't so think it's going to affect people's no, trust quotient? No, because people are, aren't worried about that. People are concerned about, if you want to know specifically about the court, people are concerned about the Republicans switching and being hypocrites on saying this is an election year. That's what people are concerned about. Isn't that amazing? I, I hope you really were digging deep in there and, and listening to what was being said. Don Lemon, it's just all it's just all verbal nonsense. It's just garbage coming out of that guy's. Well, what is he even talking? It's not a legitimate question because the thing and the blah 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 what? There was never really even an answer there. It's not legitimate because the vice president and the thing and the place and the who's and the what's and the what? Nonsense. Total nonsense. But they don't have an argument, folks. But they're so desperate. The only thing he said there that was truthful, though, was you're doing the Republicans work for them. That's right. Getting the truth on that question would be helpful to Republicans. And so the Democrat media, of which Cuomo and Lemon are a part, 
the Democrat media makes a choice, the truth is less important than the desired outcome. It's almost like their judicial philosophy, right? What is actually legal is irrelevant. What we want to be legal is all that matters. Journalists are supposed to be about getting to the truth, but here journalists are telling you that they don't want to help Republicans, even if that means that they will be complicit in the suppression of truth about a presidential candidate like Joe Biden. And then you have, uh, remember, remember Tim Kaine was Hillary Clinton's running mate? I mean, what a, you know, he's like a guy that you've seen in a few 80s movies and never knew his name. And you're like, who's that actor that was kind of in the thing? And you saw him and that's Tim Kaine as vice president. You're like, what? Who is this guy again? What's he doing? But he's also making the same former VP candidate. Uh, Tim Kaine also making the same claim here that, you know, Biden Biden shouldn't have to answer the court packing question because reasons play two. Well, I haven't asked him, but I have a pretty good idea, Bill, because it's not his business. The Constitution gives no power to the president or vice president to pack the court. I heard Senator Ernst say Joe needs to say he won't pack the court. It's not a presidential responsibility. Congress, according to Article one of the Constitution, sets the composition. So that's why it's. It's not even part of but, the but, campaign but he can, plan. He can. But also, there's veto power, so he could block legislation, right? So well, we're going to pretend now that you, that the leader of the of a party, the, whether it's the Democrat or the Republican, should not speak to the priorities of that party and what it's trying to accomplish and what the legislative branch would do. Notice the artificial separation. Or that's a Congress thing. Okay. Well, you're the president. Are you going to support it? Does the president? I mean, we call it Obamacare. You notice that we don't call it Pelosi care. But health care is actually a province uh, from a legislative perspective of the Congress. Right. But we call it Obamacare, not Pelosi care, because Obama was out there selling it and pushing forward and worked with the Democrats to ram through that nightmare of a bill. But now they create this artificial distinction where, oh, it's not the president's job to pack the court so he doesn't have to say whether he thinks it's a good idea or not it's the congress's only it's not relevant notice they're willing to make pathetic arguments these are pathetic arguments these are laughable flimsy arguments that people in prominent positions who are very wealthy and have influence among democrats among the whole country unfortunately will say with a straight face because there's not they're desperate and they want what they want, and they're not able to make a principled, reasoned argument for what it is that they're trying to get out of all of this. So just take note of that. What's going to happen if on election night, I've really been thinking about this, what's going to happen if on election night there's not a winner declared? Now, I would go so far as to say that I think this is likely. I would go so far as to say that I believe this is what's going to happen. Now, it's a prediction. I could be wrong, but I understand Americans usually expect November 3rd to be the date that will determine the outcome of the presidential contest. But it might not be that simple this time because there are realistic scenarios, perhaps even likely ones, as I say. I, I think it is likely where we do not know who's going to be president for the next four years after Election Day. There are going to be razor thin uh, vote margins, my friends, in about a half a dozen swing states. I'm very when I say razor thin, you know, one percent of the electorate, 
overall nationally, 2% of the electorate overall nationally is going to determine this whole thing. And there are already changes in the processes that have been placed for a long time because of the COVID pandemic that could add to the chaos. So mail-in ballots are the most likely reason for a delayed election night result. You already have five states with mail-in only elections, Colorado, Hawaii, Washington, Oregon, and Utah. But there are recent additions to that list because of COVID-19 fears. New Jersey and California are going all mail-in because people are so terrified of COVID. That's right, terrified to wait mostly outside, socially distanced in a line. This is where we are. Uh, but there are also a lot of states that, as we know, allow absentee ballots, which uses the mail. And so Democrats are playing this whole game where they're acting like mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. It's all the same. No, universal mail-in ballots means that everybody on the voter registration rolls gets sent a live ballot. You can just fill it out, sign it, send it in in the mail. And we all know that there are shockingly outdated voter registration rolls in many, many states. We're talking about millions of, of improper ballots going out if this happens enough nationwide. So that's on the, that's the concern about there's a concern about fraud and there's also a concern about delay. All right. Delay the mail, as we know, is not is not perfect. The mail uh, could could end up slowing things down. And there may well be uh, from the 4th of uh, November until I think it's December 12th. Uh, that's how long it can take for the state to even certify their their results. And given all these mail-in ballots that some states are even going to count if they're postmarked after the election, you have a lot of ballots out there that could be filled out, harvested, filled out, sent, and no one's ever going to know. Okay, no one's ever going to know the difference. They're not going to look into this. It's very hard to prove. And you're also going to have a, a very high stress put on the Postal Service to get all this stuff done at this time, millions more ballots than ever before. So this is what led to the midsummer news cycle. You remember this full of all those conspiracy theories that Trump was defunding the post office. And there were all these hysterical social media posts shared all over the Internet, claiming that the post office boxes were being intentionally moved and mail sorting machines destroyed all as a part of some Trumpian scheme. They alleged to defund and disable the mail and prevent mail in ballots from arriving. So look, even though that post office conspiracy fear has died down for now, there are going to be issues because of the unprecedented amount of voters entrusting their ballots to a mailman or a mailbox. I guess the mailman takes it out of the mailbox. You've got over a million mail-in votes likely to be disqualified and discarded, according to analysis that's out there from a bunch of places, including USA Today. Because all they have to do is have a missing signature and doesn't count. How many people do you think? How many times have you sent in a check where you forgot to sign it? That's happened to me. Happens all the time, right? People forget they fill it out. And they forget to sign it. And that means the ballots will be rejected. Just this year, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania rejected about 60,000 primary ballots between the three of them. There's only three states. Those are battleground states, folks. That's in the general. So you have the delayed ballot issue. You have discarded ballots. You have possible fraud. And then you have different states with different deadlines about when they can receive absentee ballots and oversee ballots. So. If the COVID-19 pandemic pushes mail-in voting to record numbers, this, this could be stressing the system to a breaking point. And all of this is happening, as we know, during an election that's the most contentious in living memory. Democrats are still clinging to this belief that Trump 
didn't really win the 2016 election in a, a fair and square. And they're already spreading panic that Trump will refuse to step down if he loses. We've even heard that insanity during debates from the moderator. What would you do if President Trump, Vice President Pence, what would you do if Trump didn't step down? It's madness. Without a concession from Democrats on election night, which I think is a realistic scenario, I think that's the probable scenario. The various vote churning and litigation machines of both sides will kick into overdrive. Some states have all the way up until December 12th to certify their state election results. That means there could be weeks of gamesmanship and court battles over discarded ballots, extending deadlines and other inevitable voting issues. The national focus could also quickly turn to the prospect of a contingent election. That's right. That's a real thing, folks. Could occur if neither side ends up winning outright the Electoral College. Uh, Now, I don't think this will happen, but people will be talking about it. A contingent election has occurred three times in the past, but it's been a long time. 1801, 1825 and 1837. Now, there is a process in place for this scenario. It's been successful in keeping presidential succession going in the past when it had to be used. Essentially, the presidential election process in a contingent election is handed over to the House of Representatives. Then it all comes down to how many individual states a candidate wins. The Senate, in turn, picks the vice president, who, as we know, is president of the Senate. So that kind of makes sense. But these are very volatile times, my friends. And if we don't have a winner on election night, and I don't think we will. That doesn't mean I don't think Trump's going to win the election. I just don't think we're going to have a winner on election night because Democrats are going to refuse to concede based on mail-in ballots that who knows how many are really out there. But the allegations of cheating, tyranny, a stolen election, they're going to be screamed on TV screens, newspapers, websites all across the country. And you're going to have vast hordes of angry voters who are going to take to the streets in protest, all from what we've seen, uh, you know, this summer from Biden and the Biden voters. It's going to be mayhem. There's going to be rioting looting, burning down neighborhoods. It's in the best interest for all of us, I think, to have a winner, a clear winner on November 3rd. But given the surge of mail-in ballots, such a clear resolution could end up being wishful thinking, my friends. The way 2020 has gone so far seems much more likely our republic is going to be stress-tested in ways that will shake the foundations of our political institutions and challenge the genius of our founding documents to their very core. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Let's hear from some of the uh, dumbest analysts on television, courtesy of The View. So they're always good for that. You want the worst view on TV? Turn on The View. Let's hear first from Anna Navarro on the ACB situation, just to give you a sense of what uh, ill-educated left-wingers are saying about this. Play 21. Of course. Look, I think every judicial nominee should be, unless you're an atheist, you should be asked how and if your beliefs are going to influence your judicial decisions and the way you view uh, issues. Look, most of us on this panel have been raised uh, Catholic. We know that, uh, that, 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 you know, that there's, that some of these issues that come in front of the court are actually issues that are taught to us. And it is a fair question to ask because we are a country where there is a separation of church and state. But I also think that Republicans are making an issue out of this to try to make her into a victim of religious persecution that does not exist. Do they ask it of, of every nominee the same way they're going to be asking it of Amy Coney Barrett? Also, I think it's fascinating, unless you're an atheist, because then, you know, no, no problem there with your beliefs. Hmm. Interesting. 
you mean that an atheist who would clearly be hostile to believers shouldn't be asked if their hostility to believers would be a problem for them on the yeah you notice that right that's that's that slipped in there very easily uh, look a lot of people are raised catholic who are in no meaningful way are in no meaningful way whatsoever catholic by by ethics by doctrine by practice and uh this is you know that's just the truth and i went to jesuit school and i call them a bunch of commies so and some of them are great some of them are great very good educators i'm not saying that but Every time I hear some priest who's like, yeah, Biden's going to save us all. And like, you should give your house to illegal immigrants. I go, wait, what? Oh, it's a Jesuit. Okay, cool. Good job. Nice job, Society of Jesus. Joy Behar. Behar, here she is. My Behar is tough because really to, to vocalize that is not easy. You know, it's more like right here. There we go. She's like, you know, Moscow Mitch, he's the worst. Play 19. Moscow, Moscow Mitch admits that he stacked the court, that he blocked Obama from getting any judges in for two years. He stopped uh, the Merrick Garland uh, uh, nomination. Now he's pushing uh, this Coney right. woman through, or uh, Barrett, rather. Um, and so if the, if the Democrats feel that they want to put more justices in, uh, they should do it. But I don't believe, because it's, it's not just about being vindictive, it's about justice. It's about, you know, it's about, they're totally justified in doing it because they need more people to get the balance going. But I don't think that mm-hmm. Joe Biden should uh, show his hand now. Absolutely not. The base won't, will be yeah. disappointed if he says he's not going to do it. And the rest of the country gets upset when, when he says he's going to do it on their side. So why should play a dead hand, Joe? Yeah, that's right, Joe. Just don't answer the question. People don't have a right to know. You want to know what what idiot Democrats think about the courts and jurisprudence? Joy Behar actually gives you a very good sense of it there. Uh, Completely unprincipled blather. But it is about the raw pursuit and exercise of power. So she gets that part right. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Biden may be hiding in the basement, but Trump's out there feeling good, cleared for takeoff, and he's all over the place right now, making sure he brings his message to the American people to just tell us what to expect, how these last few weeks are going to look, how the president's doing, and how the campaign's going to really work to shape its message in these final moments. We got Tim Murtaugh with us now. He is the director of communications for the Trump campaign. Tim, great to have you back. Great to be with you, Buck. Thanks, as always. Tell us, what are we expecting tonight out on the campaign trail? Where's the president going to be? And and what's uh, what's going to be the primary message? Uh, the president's going to be in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, for another rally like he was in Florida last night. And He's going to keep hitting the campaign trail with all the energy and enthusiasm that you might expect from President Trump. Pennsylvania tonight, and then he's on to Des Moines, Iowa on Wednesday, Greenville, North Carolina, Thursday. Friday, he's got two events, one in Ocala, Florida, and one in Macon, Georgia. And we anticipate that the president is going to keep up this schedule and only ramp up further. And really, the closing argument boils down to this. President Trump has accomplished more in 47 months than Joe Biden has in 47 years as a failure as a Washington, D.C. politician. That's really the nut of it. And everyone knows that the president built the world's best economy once, and he's already doing it a second time. Joe Biden has been an economic disaster through his almost five decades in Washington. 
and now he wants to raise taxes by $4 trillion and impose the Green New Deal on everybody. And so uh, with the economy being really the central point in this whole campaign, the answer is Donald Trump quite clearly, and it's not even close. Tim, can you give us a little a little drill down into Pennsylvania as one of the primary battleground states? And I'm right here in New York. Pennsylvania is next door. Uh, watching this closely, I've got a good friend of mine, Sean Parnell, running for Congress out there. Tell me, uh, how is the Trump campaign looking and and you know who are the final the final uh, tranche of voters in Pennsylvania that you're trying to sway over? I mean, just just give us some expert analysis of of how that essential swing state is looking right now. Well, we love Sean Parnell, first of all, and uh, he's, he's going to do a great job in Congress when, when he wins. Uh, but in, in uh, Pennsylvania, generally, uh, it's a lot of things, actually. First, let me just look at the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, the ground game that the president has assembled is really second to none in history. It's the largest ground game, 2.4 million volunteers out there knocking on doors, registering voters, and making phone calls. And in Pennsylvania, if you look at registered voters, Democrats versus Republicans, since Election Day 2016, uh, Democrats always have a voter edge, but that gap has narrowed by 200,000 voters. And that's because of the president's ground game registering Republican voters. So we're 200,000 voters better than we were on Election Day 2016. And if you remember, the president won Pennsylvania by about 44,000 votes. And so we've added 200,000 on top of that number. We feel very good about Pennsylvania. Uh, economically, uh, the issues are going to be very important in Pennsylvania. The president built the best economy that Pennsylvania has ever seen, and he's doing it a second time. Uh, Joe Biden voted for NAFTA. That was a job killer in Pennsylvania. Uh, he argued for most favored nation status and helped get China into the World Trade Organization. That cost the United States 60,000 factories and three and a half million jobs. And that is very, very important for a state with a lot of working people like Pennsylvania. And Joe Biden, he may have the support of union executives, the presidents of unions, but President Trump is going to get the union households, the actual union workers. And it's because of a, a number of things. First, the president's real improvement, vastly improving America's standing in our trade deals, getting rid of NAFTA and replacing it with USMCA. Uh, but also, the president's clear championing of American energy industries, and in particular in Pennsylvania, fracking, the natural gas industry, which employs 600,000 Pennsylvanians. Joe Biden, as you know, Buck, uh, has declared war on fossil fuels, and he's teamed up with AOC. He's got his own version of the Green New Deal, and that calls for the end of fossil fuels. And when he's on the campaign trail talking to environmental activists, Joe Biden tells them we're going to end fracking, going to ban fracking. Of course, when he's in Pennsylvania, he tries to hide that. But the truth is Joe Biden's agenda would kill 600,000 jobs in the fracking industry in Pennsylvania. Those, those are the key issues. The president has made great inroads in the Latino community and in the black community because of uh, pre-pandemic uh, unprecedented low, all-time low unemployment in the black community. The economic message cuts across all demographics, and that's how the president is going to win Pennsylvania a second time. We're speaking to Tim Murtaugh, director of communications for the Trump campaign. Tim, talk to me about where we stand here with the the controversies, the back and forth over mail-in balloting, universal mail-in balloting, uh, New Jersey, California are going to be doing this. A bunch of other states have been doing it for years. Where where does that issue stand right now? And how much of a concern is it that there could be both uh, fraud and also just 
ineptitude in terms of being able to execute on this. Well, we have serious concerns about it because, you see, Democrats have been in court in 18 states trying to loosen campaign integrity and loosen the protections uh, against uh, having people have their votes stolen by others committing fraud in elections. When you have Democrat governors uh, and legislatures trying to institute, and they started doing this only three months away from Election Day, universal mail-in voting, which is sending a ballot, a live ballot, to every registered voter, whether they asked for one or not, that's not the same thing as traditional absentee by mail voting like they do in Florida and so many other states where people actually request a ballot, and so you know it's an actual voter who wants that ballot. When you mail them out to every registered voter, you know that these voter rolls are notoriously bad. The addresses are wrong. People have moved. Uh, in many cases, people have actually died, and still the ballot gets mailed out. And so you see all these things, and it's never it was never the Postal Service. That was never the issue. That was a complete red herring that the Democrats Democrats uh, dreamed up to make people think that there was a war on the post office. No, the issue is you don't know who's going to get their hands on these ballots when they send them out to every registered voter. And secondly, when they get mailed back in, these are local elections offices who have never had to deal with this kind of volume. They're going to be overwhelmed, and there is so much opportunity for fraud. Look what happened in Patterson, New Jersey, where they had their municipal elections this May, where it was the first time that they had used universal mail-in voting, and 20% of the ballots that came in were deemed fraudulent, and a judge actually ordered that election to be done over. Uh, in New York City, those congressional races that took six months to declare a winner because of the flood of mail-in ballots that they weren't expecting, they were only talking about 20,000 ballots. And here in some states, we're going to be talking about millions. And so when you, when you loosen the restrictions and Democrats are trying to actually extend Election Day, move Election Day back a week effectively, giving them a week to count the absentee ballots and remember what happens when these ballots get mailed out, they get sent out in pre-postage paid envelopes. And when they get mailed back in, they don't get postmarked, so they are not date-stamped at all. There's no way to tell when those ballots were mailed. So if you push it back a week, you got a situation where in so many states, Democrats could wake up on the morning after Election Day, see that Donald Trump won the state by, say, 10,000 votes, and now they've got seven whole days to go find 10,001 votes to try to put Joe Biden over the top. It absolutely paves the way and practically invites cheating and fraud. That's what we're concerned about. And so that's why we've been in court fighting against the Democrats who are in there trying to loosen these regulations and loosen, loosen the protections. And we'll be ready on Election Day and beyond to fight off whatever uh, chicanery the Democrats have in store. That's what I was going to ask you about next, Tim. So it's a perfect transition. What happens if, you know, the campaign, the Trump campaign, the, the results come in and you all declare, OK, you know, God willing, uh, that the president is going to be the president for four more years. And the Democrats refuse to have that concession call from Joe Biden and say, nope, we don't know when the, we don't know how many mail in ballots are out there. So we all have to sit. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're ready for that to happen. You see notable Democrats like Hillary Clinton even telling Joe Biden that he should not concede under any circumstances. So we're absolutely ready for that eventuality that Biden won't concede. And this will be a big court fight and going down, you know, sort of reminiscent of 2000 and Bush and Gore. And we have been for a long time, well more than a year, putting together the team that's going to be, be doing this. Of course, we'll have poll watchers in, in the uh, voting places, which is a common practice for 
both sides, making sure that the rules are being followed when people are actually casting their votes. But for the days after Election Day, we're going to have thousands upon thousands of volunteer attorneys uh, helping us do this. And, and we know that we're going to have to be in court battling this because the Democrats are going to make it so, and we have to be ready to answer them. We're also going to be challenging a lot of the crazy things that the Democrats are going to want to be doing after Election Day, and we're, we'll be anticipating a lot of their crazy maneuvers and, and be ready to try to stop them from doing it, because we know there is nothing that Democrats like to do in the world more than trying to change the rules of the game while the game is in progress or even after the game is supposed to be over. And we know that, and we will have thousands upon thousands uh, of lawyers and other volunteers ready to go. It's all being run out of, uh, out of the campaign and also at the RNC, and I think you and your listeners should rest assured that there, there is no dirty trick that we have not uh, anticipated from the Democrats, and we will be ready. Tim Murtaugh, Director of Communications for Donald Trump's campaign, folks. Tim, great stuff. Good luck. Come back, talk to us soon. Anytime, Buck. Thank you very much. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and um, everybody. I'll just give you a big fat kiss. That was a fun moment from Trump last night at, at his uh, rally in Florida, uh, down in Sanford, Florida, near Orlando. And the, the president is no longer contagious, folks. There's no scientific basis between now and the election, probably until deep into next year at a minimum, you know, February, March. There's no scientific basis whatsoever for the president of the United States to have to wear a mask between now and the election. But notice how you will see mask shaming anyway, because it's not about disease. It's about the example. President has antibodies. He's done. Negative test. No reason to believe he can still be infected or infect anyone else. That is what the science tells us. But do you think that they're going to let that go? Do you think that that will be uh, acceptable if the president decides that he's going to just enjoy the right to breathe free, fresh air without you know, I can tell you, I, I was working out yesterday because I'm you know, trying to deal with the COVID-15 and I was working out yesterday and I had to I was in a gym. There are a few other people in the gym and I had to sneeze. And I knew that if I pulled my mask off and sneezed, it would be like I've you know, unleashed a bioweapon as far as these people are concerned. They would lose their minds because my building is full of libs. And, and I sneezed into my mask like, and, and put my hand over the mask like a good little uh, good little COVID defender. And. It was disgusting in there. I mean, it was like the swampiest swamp creature imaginable. It was gross. What else am I supposed to do, though? And now I'm sitting there. I got like a wet mask with all kinds of I'm not even going to describe it. Some of you might be eating lunch, but I'm just saying it's gross. But this is what I'm supposed to do now. So the people aren't scared. <sighs> Idiotic. But that's what happens. I'm also hoping that at least maybe using a mask while you work out is almost like swinging a, a baseball bat with a Bruce and Mark, they call it a donut, right? Yes, the weights on it. Yeah, the weight on it, donut. Yeah, swinging a bat with a donut so that if I work out with a mask on for four or five months, at least it'll feel, you know, my lungs and everything will feel easier when I finally, hopefully one day, I'm able to just work out like a normal person without a mask on. Wouldn't that be amazing? But yeah, Trump is now immune. And he, should, and he can go out there. Look at this. 
almost like he made a calculated decision, took a risk. It paid off. And now he can be out there campaigning and not have to worry at all. Oh, gosh. You mean that people can live their lives that way? Yes, they can. They usually do until now. But then there's the Fouch. The Fouch still thinks the president should wear a mask. Still thinks he should wear a mask. That's what the Fouch is there for. Wear a mask, social distance, the mitigation, the measures. Play 27. I want to talk about this idea of like once you're past that 10 day period of showing symptoms, you're likely not uh, contagious uh, anymore. Given that there's so much we still don't know about this virus, um, would it not be better for those who have been infected? I'm thinking right now specifically of Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who was maskless at the Supreme Court confirmation hearing today. Uh, He said that he got a he, you know, he produced a letter showing that he's outside the 10 days and the doctor gave him the all clear. Um, But I have to say, I don't know that I would feel comfortable sitting next to him so soon. Right. wouldn't it, you know, in the in the name of being better to be safe than sorry, wouldn't it be better for President Trump, uh, Senator Lee to wear masks and limit their exposure to others, even if they're past the 10 days? Yeah, I mean, as the better part of caution, I think that that would be appropriate to do that. I mean, I certainly think from a practical standpoint, I probably would do that myself just to be extra careful. That's right. Our, our chief disease expert, according to the federal government bureaucracy, is telling you that Even when you have the most on-the-spot, high-level medical care in the world that's told you that you are negative, you've tested negative multiple times, we know that people have antibodies afterwards uh, for at least a few months, if not longer, that you should still wear a mask just to be on the safe side. Why not three masks? I mean, two sounds good, but why not three? Why not mask and goggles? Why not wear a mask when you go to sleep? What if what if a fireman has to come into your home because there's a fire in the middle of the night and you're breathing and the fireman comes to save you and now you've breathed your COVID on him. So you got to wear it when you're sleeping. Don't you see? This is the society that they're creating for us. This is the idiocy that they're. Remember, if people people want to be as cautious with themselves, that's fine. They're making you do it. They're making me do it. They're making everyone live based on their anxiety and also their political signaling and then there's of course Fauci saying I'm not I'm not political I'm not a political guy at all my wife voted for Hillary and I love Hillary and wrote her an email saying I love her and I'm proud of her after the Benghazi hearings which were highly partisan but play 25 in hindsight doctor have you put up with too much well I don't know what you mean by put up with too much I mean obviously there are a lot of things that are going on that you would prefer did not happen like the ad which put me in a political context, which I spent my entire career staying out of political context. That's not helpful. But I, I'm certainly not going to give up. This is too important a problem. I mean, I've devoted my entire professional life to fighting infectious diseases. This is an outbreak of historic proportions, the likes of which we have not seen in 102 years. There's no chance that I'm going to give up on this and walk away from it no matter what happens. Not political, he says, though, not political. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is able to cite Fauci all the time and Fauci has no problem with it. Biden can cite how he listened to Fauci. Fauci doesn't say keep me out of it. But Trump uses him in a campaign commercial. Big problem. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, time to take cover because there's some truth bombs coming your way, courtesy 
of my main man, Jesse Kelly, who is the host of I'm Right with Jesse Kelly on the first. Also, radio host down on KPRC Houston, a wonderful station that also airs yours truly. So, uh, Mr. Kelly, not everyone else can see you, but we know that life is good for you and, and you continue to expand to the masses because now you feel comfortable dressing like Don Johnson from Miami Vice with the uh, T-shirt and blazer. Look, Buck, everybody in this lifetime has these moments, you know, where their whole life changed. You hear people talk about this all the time. I, I joined the service or I had a kid. I got married. And you're like, oh, my life's totally changed after. My life has changed when I joined Team V-neck. Man, once I got on the V-neck T-shirt thing, I feel like I feel like a new person. See, you're hot right now, probably miserable. I feel like there's a breeze blowing through. Like my whole chest is exposed, and I'm just I'm I'm living I'm living the free life. Important as a radio host to be comfortable. I don't think anyone realizes what they've done for for some of us now that so many of us don't have to be in an official studio where we see other human beings anymore. That uh, sweatpants and pajama mm-hmm. sweatpants and pajama pants have replaced the section of my closet where I used to keep the suits. The, men, the men's, like, three-piece suit, n- never happening again, dude. Weddings and funerals, maybe. That's this, it. This, this, is, this is no joke. I'm walking out of the house this morning. It's so funny this comes up. This morning I'm walking out of the house, and my wife looks at me, and she says, please tell me you're not wearing that. I said, baby, it's radio. And when it comes to TV, I can take the shirt off and put something else on. Yes, I'm wearing that. I mean, it's ratty shorts flip-flops it's a disaster i gotta tell you all those people who stayed strong during the great cargo shorts shaming period of the last 10 years <laughs> and who kept their cargo shorts in the closet those things do look like crap but man are they comfortable they're great i'm wearing cargo shorts not as much now because it's getting colder but all summer baby the big pockets that i never that use convenient? yes Yes, they're so convenient. Who doesn't want extra pouches? I mean, it's like it's like having a fanny pack without having to endure the stigma of a fanny pack. But I'm almost 40. I'm rapidly approaching that age. I'm going to rock fanny pack, too. I don't care. What do I care? I'm on Team V-Neck. Yeah, people also look at me like wearing high socks sometimes when I have shorts on. It's like I look like a, a camp counselor from the <laughs> 1970s. And I was like, socks are meant to provide comfort and absorption. This is not a fashion statement. Yeah, look, and you know what's you know what's really underrated? Socks in general. As I've gotten older, I've realized that my old man always used to lecture me. There are three things you never, ever, 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 ever go cheap on, ever. One is tires. You never go cheap on tires for any reason. Two, toilet paper. And three, socks. You never go cheap on anything you put on your feet, socks or shoes. And since I've upgraded to like more than 50 cents per pair of socks, my, my whole life's different. I would add sushi to your list, by the way, from personal experience. But yes, indeed, those are all very good. Those are all. <laughs> Jesse doesn't even like sushi. All right, let's get into some real stuff here for a second. Although that was a lot of worthwhile life advice for everybody listening across the country. Jesse, uh, this week is ACB week. Um, I mean, I'm analyzing and I'm doing it. Uh, look, she's going to get confirmed. OK, I mean, the, the Democrats have got nothing. Basically, they're going to whine about exactly what we thought they would. I'm actually a little bit surprised. I thought they had more in the tank. Maybe they're going to pull some last minute. And I keep saying this. They're going to pull the Kavanaugh thing, which was everything was fine. And then at the last second, they had this ambush plan that clearly had been in the works for a long time. But the ACB stuff. OK, let's put that aside for a second. We had an election coming up. I feel like the single biggest issue in the country right now, because it determines the economy, it determines your individual freedoms of all kinds, are these lockdowns. 
And there's more data coming out all the time to just show that these lockdowns not. It's one thing to say, Jesse, I think I think this would be would be fair to say was your position very early on. Um, I would say it was it was my position very early on that even if lockdowns work somewhat, the catastrophic cost needs to always be weighed against what you're doing here. And, and it didn't seem like it was worth it to me. Now there's more and more evidence when you actually look at the data that this was actually just a self-imposed wound with minimal to no upside. And I don't know why everyone everyone should be making this case. I'm not hearing it. What's, here's what's amazing about it, Buck, is you're 100% right, and they're going to study America 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, like, like we do with all great empires. We'll go down as a big empire, and they're going to study the country. What we've done with coronavirus will be studied by historians. Because there is almost, there's, I don't know that there's any precedent in the history of the world for what we've done. We've taken these measures that have financially cost trillions and trillions of dollars. And that honestly, trillions doesn't actually put the real number on what this is going to cost down the road. We have very likely collapsed our financial system because of this stuff, while at the same time doing things that didn't help at all. So we gained absolutely nothing. Talk about the worst risk assessment in the history of mankind. We've gained absolutely nothing while at the same time cutting our legs out from under us. I've never seen anything like it before. We have countries around the world. I know the media can act like they don't exist. We have examples around the world of countries that are doing just fine, who didn't have these lockdowns, who everybody isn't wearing a mask. And then you have us. We have completely gutted our financial system over this. And the pain is still to come. It's amazing. Jesse, I see uh, the the data on schools has started to come out now more, you know, more robust data, longer term data. And I remember in August, there was this whole effort in the media to suggest that opening schools was going to result in. Let's be very clear. A lot of kids were going to die and people who were were saying there should be in-person learning uh, were being reckless and political and anti-science. The data now shows unequivocally that people, you know, under the age of 13. So let's say kindergarten through eighth grade are at effectively zero risk, meaning more of them die every year from other communicable diseases in our school system than have died from covid in the first two months of school opening. So those people who were saying that school opening was going to be this human sacrifice experiment were completely wrong. Why? Why isn't anyone saying, hey, they were all wrong? How have we just moved past this? It feels like we have these furious debates and then finally we get to see who's right. And then nothing changes. And the people who are wrong just keep going on like they know what the hell they're talking about. Buck, we we've not only done this to kids. And by the way, I have two well-adjusted kids. I mean, as well-adjusted as you can be with me as a father. I've watched especially my oldest struggle with some of this idiotic school stuff. And those are kids who have two loving parents in the home. We've wrecked these freaking kids for the future. We've wrecked the, the mental well-being of this country with the alcohol and drug abuse. No one talks about the suicide hotlines, how they're overwhelmed with phone calls. And to the point you just pointed out, where's the accountability for all the doomsday prophets? I mean, I remember very clearly, I'm sure you do, I was told that I hate grandma and I hate old people and I want this old person to die and that old person to die oh, yeah. and I'm a heartless monster. Okay, fine. It doesn't bother me. Um, are you going to stand up now as the country's in bankruptcy and say something? If you were a doomsday prophet telling everybody millions are going to die and we have to do this, 
Where is your accountability when all these businesses are wiped out? We're losing half our GDP. Our small businesses are being wiped out. Let's not even talk about the hospitality industry, the airline industry, the commercial real estate industry. I work in the studio that's a high rise here in Houston. I used to have to struggle to find a parking spot on the multi-level parking garage. I park every single morning now when I get to the studio and there are three other cars in the entire floor. And that's not made up. I can park wherever I want. That's what we've done to this country. What do you think that's doing to commercial real estate and then the banks down the road? Yeah, well, that's I, I think people need to understand that a lot of what we're doing right now is almost like paying all of your bills with a credit card when you have an empty, empty checking account. You can do that for all you can keep doing it. You can keep on running the tab up. But eventually the bill comes due. And whether it's these financial measures or as you point out, the social impacts of what we've been doing, people say, oh, Buck, but I don't hear that many stories about drug overdose or I don't hear that many stories about drug abuse, which I mean, the numbers on that, I'm sure, are going to be mind boggling during this period. And what I always want to say to them is, yes, because the people that should be covering that and compiling that information and telling those stories are all completely invested in telling everybody, forget what's happening in the forget the fact that Europe has had schools open this whole time, basically. I mean, most European countries never shut down schools ever in the entire pandemic. And they've had a lot of deaths in countries like Italy and Spain and Germany and uh, and and Brussels and France. I mean, they've never shut down. Forget all that. The people that are supposed to bring us the stories of what the costs are from this are completely invested in making sure everyone stays terrified. And they know this is clear. They said that when the president says, don't let this dominate your life, the media's resounding response was, no, let it dominate your life. Mm -hmm. And remember, this is the saddest part. This actually, this, this part is sad. I don't want to bring everybody down. We were supposed to be better. We're America. We don't do what other countries do. This was, you know, I mean, it's not just sappy patriotism. This is the land of the free. This is where people who want to take big risks and be free come. And you come here because you can risk it all and make it big and lose big. And that's what America is supposed to be. And we turn into less than Europe. I, I mean, let's be fair here. What these lockdowns, these masks, all these other things, these things did not come about without the consent of the governed. These governors and mayors, and let's be frank, the Trump administration at the very beginning, yep. locked down, go home. And you know what we all did? Well, okay. Well, this governor steps up and says, shut down your business, shut down your business. Oh, okay, Mr. Governor, I'll do what you tell me. Just, just don't get mad. That's that's not America. And that those aren't Americans. And we're going to pay for that. This has been a massive, a massive experiment in government incremental tyranny. And this country has failed it miserably, miserably. Uh, we, no. we went from two Th weeks as soon as we agreed stress test and we failed. Yeah. As soon as we agreed to go hide in our homes for two weeks because of this, what seemed like this reasonable request. OK, fine. We're just getting ready for it and everything else. And then they, as soon as we all agreed, OK, we'll go stay in our homes. Then it was just, well, stay there longer. Stay there longer. Don't come out yet. We'll tell you when. Here are all these other rules. Here are all these other regulations. Just stay at home. I, I mean, it was really as though we had we had war gamed out a slippery slope to the government being able to tell you all the things that it now does, where you can go. Does the First Amendment apply? Can you worship in church or synagogue or mosque? Can you? Uh, open your business. Can you see your friends get all of these things? We've just handed it over to people like Governor Cuomo, who is a straight up moron, by the way. And that's <laughs> and, I, and I talk about this and I'll tell you, look, Jesse, I've been I've been disappointed. 
I have a lot of conservatives who are like, you talk about masking too much. You talk about lockdowns too much. And I want to scream and say, don't you realize this is the most important issue in the country right now? Nothing else is even close. ACB, this is all blah, blah, blah. People that are sitting there saying, just look at your watch. Any minute now, we're going to find out about the deep state or whatever. Garbage. Meaningless. This matters more than all of those other things. But no one seems to care. All that other stuff, you're 100% right. All that other stuff you just mentioned will be forgotten like that. I wasn't exaggerating, Buck. A thousand years from now, they'll be writing about what you just talked about. They will write about the fall, the, the same way we analyzed the fall of Rome with the vandals pounding on the, on the city gates and stuff. They will talk about coronavirus and the fall of the United States of America. They will. It will be part of history because I, I've never seen national suicide like this in my entire life. For a virus with 99.7% survival rate. It's, if, if you were to tell somebody this at any other point in history, that that's what we're going to lock down a country and destroy our economy. Why? Oh, because there's a virus that's 99.9% of you are going to survive. They would have laughed in your face. They would have thought you were joking with them. We did it. The land of the free, the most powerful country in the world. We did it. We did that. And yeah. We no, we, we all, as long as, as, long as the uh, stores are stocked with mac and cheese and ice cream, and we've got Netflix, Hulu, and, you know, ESPN classic sports to rifle through and our, and our, you know, social media accounts to yell at each other. A lot of people are like, yeah, whatever. Fine. You know, I'll get my check one way or the other. And who cares? And, and unfortunately, we're seeing the end results of that right now. I, I hope I also think people need to understand that at least Trump will try to take us out of this. Biden's going to lock us down much deeper. I think everyone's realized that now. I've been saying it for a while. Biden's not going to just open everything up to make things better. No, they like this situation of control. They're going to use it to their advantage. Before we let you go, Jesse, I just want to know what you make of this uh, CDC study making the rounds right now that of all coronavirus cases in the U.S. in July, 85 percent of the people who were who were uh, positive, according to the CDC, said they either always or almost always wore a mask under all circumstances of interaction with other people. What, what, are, what are we supposed to make of that? 85%. I think, I, I think the most absurd lie people tell themselves over and over again, and they always have, is that doctors know what they're doing. Uh, the truth is doctors are just like school teachers. The profession itself is given uh, an amount of respect because of what they do, they do, but most of them, even the highly accomplished ones, are completely useless. One or two good ones will completely change your life for the better, but most of the time, doctors doctors are useless. They used to give people heroin for colds. They used to give children mercury enemas. Doctors are always learning, always finding out the thing they did previously murders everybody. The French, when they were building the Panama Canal, had trouble with mosquitoes. They used to put bowls of water underneath the patients' beds because they didn't know what was going on. Doctors are morons. As, and we as, were told by all these doctors, oh, I'm a doctor. You have to listen to me. These freaking idiots don't know what they're talking as, about. Yeah, put a whole society in a mask. As, as somebody it sounds like something a three year old. As somebody who's been who's been to a doctor before to have something looked at on his forehead to be told by one that it was dry skin and another that it looks like it might be cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you, Jesse, go go three. Go ask three dermatologists what that what that rash on your elbow is and then come back and tell me about how we should all, you know, mask up because of the science. Jesse Kelly, everybody. I'm right with Jesse Kelly is the show. Also, check him out down on KPRC Houston and the Jesse Kelly show. Uh, Jesse, my man. So good to have you on. Thanks for joining. Be good, brother. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Just remember, everybody, that the Democrats are promising you everything's going to get oh so much better. 
so much better if you elect Joe Biden to be senator? Play 23. You know, we have to come together. That's why I'm running. I'm running as a proud Democrat for the Senate. <laughs> Look, I almost I almost can't blame the guy when you've been running for the same Senate seat for so many decades and just going through the usual routine. Oh, blue collar Joe riding the train, the choo choo with all the blue collar folks just trying to take care of the working class. And I'm a good Democrat. And, you know, the whole the whole spiel, right? The whole thing. Uh, when you're that guy, it's tough to expect you to all of a sudden change it up. It's it's uh, it's asking a lot to think that someone at that stage is all of a sudden going to have something new to say. But there are these photos you're seeing of the Biden gatherings or rallies, and there's nobody there. And I know that Republicans keep pointing this and saying, see, look at the Trump rallies. And the Trump rally last night in Sanford, Florida was it was like the old rallies in 2016. But these Democrats there, I, I told you the data on the separation between fears over covid on le- between left and right. I mean, Democrats are terrified of covid and Republicans are not or at least a lot of Republicans are not and almost all Democrats are. So I think that that's that there's reason to believe there's a silent majority out there. But I would not, if I were you, expect that the rally size that we're seeing on the Biden side of things, they believe that not showing up at the rally is how they show support for Biden. I know that sounds crazy and like it's very self-justifying, but I'm just telling you, I live I'm surrounded by Democrats. Thank God they don't know what I do for a living. I'm surrounded by Democrats here in New York City, and they all I mean, this the covid precautions now are an enormous virtue signal all the time and also a political signal. You're a Democrat because you take it seriously. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Liberty, truth and great hair. those funky beats it's time for roll call roll call to be a part of our action here facebook.com slash buck sexton team buck at iheartmedia.com you can also uh send us messages on instagram producer mark will check it out let's get to it Peter writes, Buck, you mentioned the series The Mentalist on Friday. The Mentalist is about a psychic con man who helps the FBI. He is not a psychiatrist. If you're looking uh, for a good series, I highly recommend it. And with maybe the exception of the last year when I believe they were looking for a way to end the series and jump the shark. But the first six series are worth the time. Uh, Yeah, no, sure. I, I know. I, I I think I was referring to the mentalist just as one of these shows where there's a guy who understands psychology or something and, you know, solves the crimes. Uh, so, yeah, but if it's a good series, I'm, I might be able to check it out. I'm really I love Bosch. I'm on season four now, I think, or three. Bosch is really good. And it's just the first series I've seen in a long time that shows more of Los Angeles. So for our KEIB listeners, I'm learning cool stuff. You know, about the Venice canals and seeing it. I've been to L.A. a lot, but I haven't even experienced that historic. A lot of downtown. I've never been to downtown L.A. I've only been 
on what they call the West Side, which would be like, you know, Santa Monica and Beverly Hills and uh, Venice Beach and uh, Manhattan Beach, all that stuff. So I've uh, I've been up in the valley a lot, which is a place. You ever been to the valley, producer Mark? I've never been to L.A. The valley is like the Long Island of Los Angeles. That's what I would say. So there's some very nice stuff, but it's like a kind of an area with a lot of commuters going into L.A. And uh, yeah, that's what I'd say about the valley. So but it's not an island. It's a valley, obviously. I feel like you're right, though. Most cop crime shows are take place in New York. It's weird. The ones in L.A. Yes. Uh, A lot of the crime stuff is New York City, just because you have the, the backdrop, you know, the tapestry of New York City with its very different neighborhoods and feel and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, no, L.A., there used to be more L.A. stuff. I feel like all movies in the because Hollywood, obviously movies in the 80s and 90s, so much of it was uh, was filmed in and around the Los Angeles area. So that you got it. But it was filmed on lots a lot of the time. Bosch is cool because they they show you actual L.A. I mean, they show you stuff in Los Angeles and they shoot scenes on, you know, they shoot scenes on site instead of. Everything is like a Warner Brothers sound studio because there's a lot of that. Don't they have enough traffic in L.A.? They need to close down streets to shoot shows. Well, they have a lot more space, though. So that's, that's that. Well, yeah, whenever they do it in the I, city and it closes down streets. The reason streets, I, look, I, the I, lost An- I could never live in L.A. just because of the traffic. That's it. Wouldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it as a result of that. That's all. It's just not for me. I'm, I, but I'm, a, I'm not a car. Like, I have a brother who's a car enthusiast, loves you know, German engineering and BMWs and all this stuff and is, uh, has done race car training just for fun. And he loves cars. He enjoys cars. I'm just like, I'm one of these people that if I could get into a car and press a button and take a nap and it would just take me there, I'd be totally happy. I have no interest in like revving the motor and using the clutch and all that. I don't care at all. Yeah, I'm the same way. If it, if it turns on and gets me from point A to point B, cool. Yep. Joe, here we go. Buck. I've been a daily listener for nearly a year now, actually late evening in Melbourne, Florida. Hey, that's great, Joe. On uh, the podcast as well, when I need to catch up or I'm traveling. I'm a 74-year-old Vietnam vet, very conservative. Listen to a great deal of talk radio these days and consider myself to be somewhat liberal before Reagan and solidified my conservative philosophy after I began to listen to Rush in 1991. No one can top Rush, of course, but even the best of things must come to an end someday. Hate to think of that when Rush will retire. It's comforting to know, though, that Buck Sexton will be there to take up that mantle when it does happen. I know of no one else who is more suitable and qualified. Well, Joe, you just made my day. That's the nicest thing anyone said to me all day and probably all week, maybe all month. So thank you very much for that. And there's do you even be spoken of in the same sentence as the great Rush Limbaugh. I mean, you're being compared to the greatest. So or, or, or being I should say just spoken of in the same sentence as the greatest, not even being compared to. So. That's uh, very encouraging and very kind of you, and I appreciate that. We'll continue to do the best show we can here every day. Um, but I think Rush Limbaugh, I think Rush has got another, he's got another 10 years in him before he's going to say, all right, I'm going to play golf. The guy's, the guy's a fighter, and he's, he's the greatest that's ever been in this game. Maureen, love your show, Buck and producer Mark. I listen daily. So based on what Governor Whitmer says, that any negative mention of her causes threats to her well-being, Will she now champion the left to stop all of their hate speech against Trump since she says negative words increase personal threats and she's so against that? Will she rally the left to denounce BLM's vile rhetoric and violence since she's so against personal threats? I hope her false accusations about Trump and her hypocrisy is noticed 
and gets her voted out whenever she's up for re-election. Thanks for all you and producer Mark do. Uh, Maureen, thank you so much for writing in. I think I can answer your question. No, no. Uh, Governor Whitmer will not reach out to the left and say, hey, guys, maybe we should stop being violent or we should stop the threatening words and saying that Trump is a tyrant. Because what do you do with tyrants? Do you if you're a patriot, do you sit around and just allow the tyrant to continue the tyranny or do you take action of some kind? Uh, What do you do if you're in a country where you're allegedly suffering under fascism? Do you just accept that or do you take action to end the fascism? Again, in some way, maybe it's at the ballot box, but fascism doesn't always lend itself to being eradicated at the ballot box, does it? This is rhetoric that has consequences. These are words that are used by the left that come with a cost. Uh, I don't think that they'll ever accept, though, that these days the left is particularly uh, is particularly emotionally driven and unhinged and prone to outbursts and to violence. They, they won't accept that because they view it as damaging. Remember, leftists, Democrats, I'll use these terms interchangeably because I think they are pretty interchangeable, but uh, le- leftists view politics as a form of personal branding. So when someone asks me, you know, are you a conservative? And I say yes, and they say why, I'll explain that, well, because this is how I approach life and this is my philosophy and these are the different issues that I have. And here are areas where I think I'm not certain that I have the right answer, but I'm still thinking about it. And I perhaps lean right for the left. It's I'm a liberal because I'm a good person, a smart, good person who's cool. That's it. That's really one of the greatest advantages the Democratic Party has is that all you have to do is sign up and you're magically a better person all of a sudden. I don't think that I'm a better person because I'm conservative. I just think I'm right on more stuff. But I'm also open to changing my mind on stuff if I think that it turns out that I was wrong about something. That's not the same thing. It's not, well, I'm a conservative, so I'm better than all the libs out there. They're, you know, I'm, I'm a nicer, kinder, more reliable person than all the libs out there. I mean, that probably is true, but you know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, that's not how we view things. Um, but there, there is a very clear association the Democrat Party has created with just voting Democrat and having attributes that are supposed to then fall upon you. Right. You're just you're handed these things. Uh, So there we go. Don Shields. High, I follow your podcast regularly. You Bongino Owens and Rob Smith are the new frontline combatants for us conservatives. Well, thank you, Don. I'm in great company there. I think you mean Candace Owens and Rob Smith. I'm betting that if Biden does win, the book makers over under on him remaining in office will be 31 days. Stay strong. Love your message. Well, thank you, Don. I think that uh, Biden will not last past his. I, I think he'll be done by the midterms. I don't I think that just to to make it seem a little less obvious that this was the plan all along. He's got to make it to the midterms that that's going to be their That's going to be their uh, their plan that they put into place. But I do not I, I do not see him going for eight years. No way. No way. And then think about what that would do to the country. But here's the truth. If you had to pick, folks, if you had to have somebody who was taking a lot of power and using it beyond the boundaries of the Constitution, beyond the framework of the founders, would you rather have it be Biden or Kamala? Biden scares me less than Kamala does. I'm just going to say it. I think Kamala is is 
a ideological leftist who poses as a moderate. I think Biden at his core is a transactional moderate who will pose as palatable to the far left. That's that's how I see it. I mean, we'll we'll have to wait and watch how this plays out. And like I've been telling you all along, we're not I don't think we're going to have a if, if it's Trump, if it's the Democrat winner, then I think Trump will concede. And, you know, we play by the rules and that will be a sad day. But we'll we'll pick ourselves up. We'll be fine. If Trump loses, guys, we're going to rally and we'll they want to see what hashtag resistance looks like. They better get ready for what's going to come their way when they try to enforce their idiot socialism and all the rest of us. But if Trump is the winner as of election night, but they won't. But uh, I'm telling you my prediction, and I want to be very clear so that we, when we know when we get there, they will not concede. They're not going to concede. They're going to drag this thing out and fight and fight and fight and abuse the process and kick at the load bearing walls of our political system with a sledgehammer, not just with their feet. I mean, they're going to take swings and see what they can do. That's that's my prediction. Remember it, friends, because you remember that prediction I made about how the bar, no one's going to prison and nothing's going to happen with the Durham report. Looking pretty good right now, isn't it? Let's just say, hey, got to give credit where it's due, including to the Buckster. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, more roll call. Kyle uh, Buck, Mayor Quimby's voice is based on Kennedy accent and lifestyle, while Chief Wiggum is based on Edward G. Robinson. If you Google the name, it'll click. Think of a prohibition era gangster holding a Tommy gun and the voice he would make. That's Wiggum. The 10 years of The Simpsons, the first 10 years of The Simpsons was pure 80s and 90s era gold. The other 20 years aren't worth watching. Producer Mark, how much of The Simpsons have you watched? I uh, used to watch all the time when I was younger. I know the old episodes are still classics, but I just learned recently that they're still making new episodes. Who knew? Oh, yeah. I watched in the 90s and yeah. thought it was very everyone. Funny. It's a cultural icon. The Simpsons. It's just. Yeah. Well, why has it gone on so long? I remember I remember uh, watching the Simpsons in the 90s. And uh, one of my favorite characters was Dr. Nick. Do you remember? Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Dr. Nick. I love Dr. Nick. He was hilarious. He was great. Dr. Nick was great. Uh, that was a, and, and then there was um, who was the uh, very fancy sounding, not Krusty the Clown, but the uh, it was it was it a sideshow Bob sideshow right? Bob. Yes. The one who always tried to kill Bart. Kelsey, Kelsey Grammer. Right. Voicing sideshow Bob. Yes. I remember that. And then it was Krusty the Clown. And you know, there's a whole thing. Krusty. It's like a little more a little more cigarette smoking from Dr. Fauci, and he'd sound a little bit more like Krusty. Uh, yeah, so anyway, The Simpsons used to be great. I have no idea what it's like anymore. I know they got rid of a bunch of characters because of wokeness, which means it's probably not nearly as funny as it used to be, uh, which is also why there are no funny movies made anymore, because nothing's allowed to be funny anymore. No, movies now that are supposed to be funny are all either making fun of people who are accessible political targets, so on the right, Christians, white males, uh, or... They are just really scatological, uh, just a lot of I, I can't even tell you. I had the experience with my with my siblings. We were away at a house for the weekend over the summer and we were trying to watch some comedy. And we went through all these Netflix specials on comedy and just one after another were horrible. We couldn't get through five minutes. So much of it was just throw a bunch of curse words, talk about something gross and have everyone go. Ew! It's like that's not a joke. It's not clever. But comedy has been destroyed because. Comedy often involves pointing out something that is somewhat or sometimes true that 
pokes fun at something, someone, some group, and you're not allowed to do that anymore. Not allowed to do that. No one's allowed to laugh at things. You know, I mean, maybe you could get away with making like Irish people drinking too much jokes. Maybe. I don't know. The Irish are very the actual Irish in Ireland are very left wing. The Irish in this country are way more uh, copacetic. That's uh, why Bill Burr got a lot of heat this weekend. What happened? He was on SNL. He did a monologue. I think he went after woke white women. And oh, there was outrage everywhere. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. See, that's what happened. But he was trying to be, he's, he's a comedian. He's a real comedian. He was trying to be a real comedian. Not allowed. Not allowed. Nothing's funny anymore. Uh, it's a shame. It's a shame because humor is such an important part of life. And really, one of the easiest ways to get, people that have a sense of humor are just so much easier to get along with. They just, it, it's like, a men, it's a mentality. It's an approach to life. Can you find things? Can you laugh at yourself? And can you find things funny easily? Or is everything just, oh, it's all so serious all the time? Uh, here we go. Uh, oh, but as for you, yeah, I'll listen to Chief. Uh, I'm sorry, Mayor Quimby and try to get a better version of the, the Kennedy. Yes, you Ich bin ein Berliner, you know, that whole thing. I'll try to figure that out. Uh, Jenna writes, please, please try and do a Dracula history shields high by Halloween. All of the monsters this season beholds this story. His story is my favorite from Bram Stoker to Lestat. He is Halloween for the ages. Zombies, witches, Frankenstein. Don't hold a candle to the Prince of Darkness. Uh, this is from Gina, by the way. I think I might have said Jenna. Gina, do what you can. We love all your efforts. Shields high. Thank you, Gina. Look, I think it'd be fun. I, I, I you know, I'm going to sort of redo some of the old, less formal versions of Shields High, where I already have the research and the knowledge from reading books and taking notes in the past. So Dracula certainly... Vlad Dracul certainly falls into that category. And I think it ties in also to the period that I'm so fascinated with, which is really the uh, Christian Ottoman, uh, Christian Ottoman uh, wars of the 15th and 16th century. If I could teach a college class, uh, the first one would be on propaganda to teach all the kids about why the news and how the news lies to them and molds their minds without them realizing it. That would be good. Taught by an ex-CIA guy, probably be a pretty popular class, let's be honest. And then the other class I would want to teach would be uh, Ottoman Christian warfare in the 15th and 16th century, just because it's fascinating and I love it. Uh, so that's and that's also why we have one shields high already done on Malta. Malta part two is coming up. We got we got Dracula. We'll do a Lepanto part one and part two. And um, I kind of want to do a a siege of Vienna one and siege of Vienna two. And then I think we're going to get to a different period in history. Maybe we go ancient Greek. Or we just pick the pick battles. I know there are podcasts out there. They pick the biggest battles, but I'll just do that based on the ones that I really like. And I might even have a show or two where I or I do a podcast where I invite some friends to also love history to sit around and chat with me about it. But thought about that. So there's a lot of things in the works, friends. Make sure you pass the buck so that everyone can hear it. Thanks for being here with me back tomorrow. Same time, same place. Shields high.